Hello and welcome to Raising Learners, a conversation about supporting your child's learning in school and at home. Throughout this series, we discuss questions like how to build a great relationship with your child's school and teacher, how to keep your child safe online, and how to navigate the sometimes challenging final years of high school. I'm Julie Green from RaisingChildren.net.au and I'll be hosting today's episode. I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands where each of us are recording today and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. For me, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. My guest today is Chris Varney from ICANN, which is Australia's largest autistic-led organisation, and Chris founded ICANN back in 2013. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, Julie. It's a real pleasure. Look, first of all, can you tell me a little more about what inspired you to set up ICANN? Well, my parents and grandparents really inspired me to set up ICANN Network. I both mum, dad, their names are John and Lisa, and my grandparents were very embracing of my quirks and different interests when I was growing up. I was a kid that was always acting, well, tried to act a lot older than I was. Sometimes getting along with people my own age was always a bit of a social struggle for me. But I was, yeah, really empowered to get out there and I guess create a network of autistic young adults who could mentor autistic teenagers and kids aged 9 to 20 across primary and secondary schools and online programs because I just thought everyone can do with an I can attitude and what better to hear it from someone who's walked your own path and maybe leverage their strengths to achieve some positive pathways in their young adulthood. Well, what an inspirational story to warm up our discussion. Thanks, Chris. We know that many autistic children thrive on routine and structure and predictability. Can you talk to us about how parents can help build this into daily life? Routines, yeah, very important for autistic kids. It's The way I would describe it as an autistic person who loves routine, it's a safety net having the routine. Like autistic people tend to be a naturally anxious group of people. And where that comes from is we are blessed with this different intuition. And at times that intuition attaches and focuses on things with this incredible intensity. So, for instance, I have some topics I can tell you. I could talk the leg off an armchair about all sorts of different things to do with history and royal families and Game of Thrones and etc. But uh, when I'm worried about something, equally I can focus on that with an intensity. And this is what happens for a lot of primary school-aged autistic kids and secondary school-aged autistic kids. And the way to kind of bring down that angst is routines, predictability, a sense of safety when someone just needs that extra assurance. In terms of some practical strategies, are making sure the schedule is widely understood on specific times can be a real benefit. This is important both in a home and also in a school. And if you're a parent listening, I would make sure that your interviews with teachers, should your child be of a school age, also talking about that routine at school and home and trying to create some cohesion between them and that the teacher understands what your home routine is. 
because that will keep helping that sense of safety that, that benefits your kid. So, Chris, are you talking about uh, things like meal time, getting up time, going to bed time, those sort of routines? Spot on. And if there's, especially if there's, if you've got a child that's uh, receiving homework at school, just making sure there's space in that parent-teacher interview to um, talk about the space of homework in that routine so that there's the communication from the teacher and the parent are fairly similar. Yeah, autistic kids more so than your more typically developing students just benefit from a lot of forewarning about any changes to that routine. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure that's a theme that we'll come back to. But as we know, life doesn't always go according to plan and and families and communities have to respond when situations arise or circumstances crop up, as we well know. How can parents help their autistic children to deal with change, especially in changing times, for example, during the pandemic of COVID-19? So always, if we think back to what is autism, autism is just a different processing style. And so when, when there's change, it's just important to give that different processing style some warm-up time so that it can adjust. Yeah, there's always sometimes, a, with some autistic kids, a little bit of a processing delay that can occur when there's a sudden change. So, and that's where we get caught out and we can have reactions that are, yeah, that we might later regret. So, when change is happening, especially we've all seen it with COVID-19, Trying to give as much warning as you can about the change, that can greatly assist the processing time that that autistic student benefits from. It's also beneficial to do a bit of mapping in terms of who are the safe people that your child already engages with because it's for a parent kind of managing all these little structures that your kid needs, that can, that's a heavy load to carry. So it can be really beneficial to identify who are some other family members or teachers or safe people who I can involve in the change so that we've all got the same message. And it might be that a school timetable suddenly had an adjustment or that there's a new teacher, there's a substitute teacher, or there's a new semester and this is what it will look like. Or these suddenly these routine excursions like swimming sports. And all these types of things can be big little disruptions. I mean, the more warning time, the better. Mm-hmm. So just always making sure that you're thinking and you're advocating to whether it's allied health services or educators around your kid, that you need the information from them fairly quickly. And do those tips look any different for children of different ages, for younger children, for teenagers? for example? Yeah, I, I would argue that they do. It's, I think for many autistic primary age students and pre-primary, when there's change, that group of kids haven't necessarily got the emotional regulation down pat to cope with that. And I would argue that it's hard for anyone to change. If we step back for a second, it can be everyone, especially now with COVID-19 induced restrictions, That's challenging for everyone. But I guess for autistic kids, because we do have this different processing style and because of that hyper-focus we can have on both our interests and our worries, what can happen is we as a group can catastrophize. So my mum would call it awfulizing. She came up with this little unique term where 
when I was having a meltdown at home and would only confess to her my most ridiculous worries, she'd called it awfulizing. It was like the world was ending. I'd worried something to such a state where I couldn't sleep properly and it was affecting all five other family members. Um, And, you know, people weren't blaming me for that because that's what my little brain was so switched on to. Part of a strength, there were some subjects I could really focus on and some I was pretty slow in. But when it comes to that change in different ages, for a primary school age kid, they're learning that emotional regulation. In high school, if there's been that support, I see across our 1,500 autistic students in ICANN a lot that have a better ability to cope with sudden changes. But equally, it's always going to be important for the autistic person, whatever their age, to have some processing time. Mm. So, to take that a little further, even with the best plans and best strategies in place, there will be setbacks from time to time, as I think you're saying. So, what can parents do to help their autistic children work through and manage setbacks and those awfulizing moments? I think the first thing to do is acknowledge that there will be some pretty tough moments and that you're not alone when you do have a moment where you feel really raw and vulnerable and let's call it out, judged. I vividly remember having a meltdown on my mum's netball court. I was refusing to go into the creche that was nearby during mum's netball game. You know, every every mum dropped their kid at the creche while while she played netball. And I was not cooperating with that very standard rule because I didn't feel safe in the creche and I didn't really like the teacher. That was an uncomfortable space for me. And being a bit fussy in particular, (laughs) I just started playing with other mum's handbags, which was obviously a total rat bag thing to do. And It was embarrassing for mum. It was like a netball. I remember a netball game stopping. It was painful. And these moments can happen, whether it's at a Woolies checkout, whether it's at a netball game, whether it's at a family event, especially when an autistic kid's young and still learning emotional regulation. Don't beat yourself up. Don't say I'm a bad parent. Don't take on board the opinions and judgments of others. Because in all seriousness, I say this as a 33-year-old, your autistic kid is just self-managing their very different processing style and their emotions. And that learning technique they develop with that self-management is a huge strength in the rest of their life. But in under 12, any kid's struggling with that. So be gentle on yourself. Trust yourself. Don't say that you're a bad parent. Don't take on the judgment of others. And yeah, I think it would be good to workshop with some trusted family members, some scripts that you can use to, if you are overwhelmed, like I remember mum being pretty embarrassed when I managed to stop her netball game, develop some scripts up your sleeve. So if you are in a total panic zone, you've just got a script like, this can happen. I know what I'm doing. It's all under control. There's not much worse he can do. He just needs five minutes time out. We can come back to exactly what we're doing then. And you might, yeah, just have some scripts up your sleeve should you be in a panic moment yourself and feel overwhelmed and overloaded just to help explain it to others and that can be make you feel like you're in control having those scripts. Mm. And the other element that you're prompting me to think about is self-care as a parent. Mm. So any thoughts around what parents might be able to do to look after themselves? Perhaps not so much in the situation. But just as part of daily life, I guess. Yeah, I guess how do you fill your jug and make sure that you're, yeah, feeding yourself 
it's making sure that you've got people you can reach out to and just vent and be real with. That will look very different for everyone. I know parents who have all their mates online or they're in a Facebook group of other autistic parents and they talk freely with them. They have a different alias. They don't have their last name on it so they can say anything they want. You definitely need a release valve where you can just let rip and do so in a safe space but not in a way that your child will see because you don't want your child taking on board what you're saying in your when you need to recover and get back to that nice performance mode of being their parent. You just need somewhere to be real and whatever that looks like, whether it is a Facebook group, whether it is your parents or your siblings or your best mate, Whatever it looks like, find that release valve and use it when you are feeling vulnerable. My honest advice, there is immeasurable benefit in connecting with other autistic parents. I'll be honest here, I think sometimes it can be quite a big step for parents of an autistic kid to connect with other autistic parents. If I was to comment on my own parents, I think there were moments where they were very accepting that I was putting the family on a fairly different path. And then there were other moments where they were managing their expectations of what they thought would happen in my certain age and stage. And when it was happening very differently, they'd have moments where they would grieve their change in their expectations. And I say that with no judgment. I'm a parent now. I manage my expectations all the time. So I acknowledge out there, if you are a parent that's listening And if you maybe haven't taken the step to disclose your kid's autism or your own autism to your wider family or your friendship network, I'm aware that it's a big deal to kind of embrace it. I took four years to process my diagnosis and I got to 19 and I started feeling really comfortable with it. I'm proud to be autistic now. and But that I needed time to process that. So, be kind to yourself, give yourself time, but... To answer the question, to turn to autistic parents, they automatically normalize your experiences and feeling like you're not alone and feeling like there are other people that get you, that understand whatever routines, changes, accommodations that your family needs to make for your kid or yourself. That is just, it's such a great sense of belonging connection to have that. So, There's huge benefits in reaching out to autistic parents, but do so when you're ready on your terms. And yeah, I really encourage you to seek that out. Mm, Thanks for those thoughts. And we know that communicating with other people can be challenging for some autistic children, not for all, but for some, depending on the child and perhaps their age or their stage of development. So what strategies can parents use really to help their child connect with others? The advice I always give is leverage the motivation that your child has. So one of the things I love about working with autistic kids is we are a group that loves our interests. To put another way, we're a group of kids and adults that are always obsessed with something. And that is a precious part about having an autistic person in your life. For instance, I can tell you all about the Wars of the Roses from the 1460 to 1485 and the the end of the Middle Ages in England. I could tell you all about that when I was nine years old, which most nine-year-olds wanted to talk about R.L. Stein's goosebumps and who won AFL on a weekend when I was growing up. But 
I'd rock up to school on a Monday morning and just want to get out of the footy conversations and talk to you about what happened to Richard III and Henry VIII's six wives and all of that story. I thought that was fascinating. I still, I still argue it is fascinating. I hope you look up those topics as you leave this podcast. But the secret is to leverage those motivations to help you push your kid to step outside of their comfort zones and perhaps do things they don't want to do. Communication, a lot of autistic kids when they're motivated can be very good at listening, can be very good with compromise, negotiation, teamwork, listening, public speaking, but you just have to leverage that golden thread of the interest and the motivation. And it can be, I guess, really empowering to have that as a simple rule when you're working with a preschool, a kindergarten, or a primary school, and they're saying to you, oh, but your child is struggling to communicate, they don't listen, they're they're either dominant or they're very shy. You just need to pivot that almost deficit-based conversation and say, yes, but this kid, my son, my daughter, loves talking about My Little Pony or loves talking about animation, loves talking about their favourite TV shows or their gaming or, or footy statistics, whatever the interest, empower those people around your kid to lean into that interest. And as you do that, you'll find that, well, I would argue you'll find that the communication struggles your child might be having will, yeah, be greatly supported by leveraging that motivation. What about for different age groups again? Are there different strategies that work better for younger children, again, older kids or teenagers, do you think? Yeah, it really depends with younger kids. I had some words that mum would use with me that meant a whole lot of things in my brain when I needed to kind of communicate with my family. So we still use this now. She would say, This was probably when I was in upper primary school, heading into high school. She'd say, regard me, which is, it's a funny, it sounds very adult, but yeah, sometimes I could be so much in my own world, locked away, thinking about whatever my interests were, that it sometimes was a real struggle to bring me into the present and kind of register what was happening and to get me out of my locked away world, which was a great place, let's be honest. You know, she'd have to say, Chris, regard me. Have you registered that? <laughs> you know, and that's, that's unusual. I'm not sure many parent, other parents would use that. You might relate to that, you might not. But that's what we used to kind of get me into the present. For older students, what I've seen that can be hard, if you are leveraging the motivation and the interest, sometimes the young person can think that's always going to happen with every communication activity that they might not want to do and you can't I'm not sharing this example with you to say that it's the I mean it is a golden thread but don't kind of set it as the expectation every time we do need to develop young people who are independent and are taking an interest in others and I guess it's negotiating with them if you listen to this person talk about that topic you'll get to talk about your topic So, that type of setting that expectation is important for teenagers. Mm -hmm. And what about that practice of working on skills that are just one step uh, from where a child is right now? How useful is that in your experience and who can help parents do that sort of strategy? Oh, well, social stories are a great tool. In my team, we make a lot of videos of 
situations, whether it's changes in a school timetable, whether it's excursions that we might be running, making sure that there's a strong visual that a lot of autistic kids can see and have plenty of time to process that. That's all really valuable. And at times when issues are building up or stress might be building up for parents, what options are there beyond that peer group and social group for parents, Chris? There's several. I think increasingly a lot of GPs gaining a lot more understanding about autism. I've observed over the last seven years that there's an enormous amount of education the medical professions arm themselves with on autism. There's still a long way to go, but I think they're becoming a lot more equipped to understand the anxiety that you might walk with when you're an autism family. And so they, yeah, I would trust them to refer you to counselling if that's something that would benefit you. There are, depending on the services local to you, there's respite. There's also terrific Facebook groups can I mention one, the NDIS Grassroots Facebook group. If you, if you contact that, that's a massive Facebook group. That is a terrific hotspot of information and guidance. And if you are someone who might struggle with administration, if um, financial paperwork, should you be going through NDIS applications and things, if that's overwhelming, yeah, be honest about it. I've, I mean, my company, we have a service that engages 180 autistic families per week. And I certainly see some families who struggle with financial paperwork. But if you just self-advocate around that and call that out early, there's so many people that can help you. So, just reach out. Don't be embarrassed to ask for help. And of course, kids are at school for a long time, aren't they? So, Mm. this might not be a one-off, you know, these communications and these efforts and these conversations with teachers at school and so on. These aren't yeah. one-off. They're a, a hopefully a, part, a regular part of kids' school life too. Absolutely. I guess I'd say on that, it is hard when you have a very different intuition, which is basically what autism is, to fit that into a very generalised curriculum that's nationwide. It, it's hard. And that, I mean, that's not just a struggle for autistic kids. That's a struggle for kids full stop, developing general content across and in such an enormous population is challenging. I think it's important to play a long game. And when you are sitting with teachers in parent-teacher interviews, we're not aiming for perfection. We're just aiming to make sure that young person is exposed to different tools and strategies, has opportunities to connect with their peers. Yeah, play a long game. And don't let anyone around your kid make you feel like, the future is doom and gloom. Never accept that. Always play the long game and see every possibility for your kid. So, Chris, what about parents who are listening and thinking, mm, I've tried that. I don't think that's going to work for me. How can you sort of send messages of encouragement to some of those parents? Yeah, don't judge if you're thinking, will this work for me? Until I mean, every single autistic kid, if you're a parent listening, there's no two autistic kids that are the same. You know, we are all so different. I think my advice today, my, my top three tips really are leverage the motivation and interest in all situations and empower all the people around your kid to do that. Number two, identify the safe people around your child that 
that you can draw on to help send messages to your kid when your voice feels a bit exhausted. And number three, you know, really celebrate their different processing style. Validate that different reasoning. It's going to make you proud someday. It's going to lead to innovation, invention, a creative brain in your family and your wider world that is going to be a big asset. If you're doubting some of the things I've talked about, like leveraging the interest, I've, I've watched kids do some pretty phenomenal things. And if you're thinking pr- practically how will that work, make sure you arm other people with, with, the, with the issue. Um, I've watched one teacher turn the whole curriculum into horsemanship because of one kid who was obsessed with horses. Uh, one of my staff was such a soccer person. Every school subject had to be structured in soccer pitches. Even English had to be in kind of embrace the different kind of World Cup geography to help it land with the student. So, you know, don't feel like it's all on you as the parent. The more you arm people with that, this is what I'm thinking, um, you know, can you help me out here? You'll be amazed what people's creativity can answer for you. Chris Varney, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and suggestions and tips. Thank you, Julie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and tell your friends. For more tips and information about the topics we've covered today, visit raisingchildren.net.au and education.vic.gov.au. I'd also like to acknowledge the Department of Education and Training Victoria for their support of this series. We hope you'll join us again next time. 